These are the true accounts of the only female combat pilots of World War II. Each episode will be told through the lens of one character, but each character is a combination of many women's stories. I'm Gabrielle Pickle, a producer and huge history buff. And I'm Meg Mesmer, a producer and huge advocate for untold female stories. You know, all this research into the Night Witches really inspired me to dig into my own family history. Because I think it's really easy for us to think of these women as just a very cool story or like a historical tidbit that we kind of find very interesting, but we don't really connect with. Um, But once I started reading about my grandfather, it really hit me in the gut. My grandfather joined the U.S. Navy as an 18-year-old in November of 1942, which was exactly a year after these girls at the same age joined Marina's all-female regiments. So while these girls were bombing the Germans in the snow in Russia, my grandfather was a co-pilot of bomber planes fighting Japan in the Pacific Ocean. That's crazy because, so it was my grandfather, although my grandfather did serve in World War II, he, uh, what I've been told is that he was a part of liberating Dachau, the concentration camp. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. And I actually visited Dachau, which was just like horrific, but also so crazy to think that my grandpa was there. Anyway, my great uncle was a parachuter in the Pacific. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there's this- I wonder this, if they met. That's I know. So oh my God, we should look that up. Um, but he, there's this wonderful story of how he jumped, he, he parachuted out, landed on the ground and broke both of his legs. Oh, and no. And then had to like army crawl through enemy territory to get out. Yeah. And he- he, he told the most amazing stories. Like he still has a samurai sword from one of the Japanese wow. men that he killed. And, you know, he talked about that man as, as in like kill or be killed. Like this man was going to kill him. So he killed that man. Like, but that's how he would talk about it. Yeah. It's just so crazy to put yourself. Well, and that's what there. I think makes these girls feel so close now because- it's not just a story. It's not just this piece of history. They could it's have been your grandmother. It could, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I now I have goosebumps. <laughs> I'm excited to dig into this story. Episode three, Nadia. Chapter one, introduction. Nadia looked at herself in the mirror and smiled with approval. She was ready. It was June 21st, 1941, and tonight was a very special dance. A jazz band played American songs while all the girls sang along in English, giggling while their partners swayed with them. It was the perfect stage for any 17-year-old's dream to come true. At midnight, she gave her partner a sweet kiss goodbye and headed home for curfew. The very next morning, she woke up filled with girlish dreams until she could hear her father listening to Radio Moscow and suddenly... All of that quickly faded. At four o'clock this morning, without declaration of war and without any claims being made on Soviet Union, German troops attacked our frontier in many places and bombed from the air, Zhitomir, Kiev, Sevastopol, and Kunas. This unheard of attack on our country is unparalleled act of perfidy in history of civilized nations. Her father stood up and put his arm around his mother and looked for Nadia. But Nadia was gone. She was running, running to the airfield. Chapter two, early life. Like other girls, Nadia loved music, singing, and poetry. 
but when she was 16 and in 10th grade, she secretly joined an air club to learn to fly. Her parents' dream for her was to become a doctor, but the minute she saw a plane, she could focus on nothing but flying. She made her first jump with a parachute and her first solo flight at the air school on the same day. It was fantastic. She was thrilled and her instructors were very impressed. A local newspaper photographer took a picture of her by the plane, and that is when her secret came out. (laughs) When she came home, her parents asked if the picture was her, and she had to confess. They were angry that she kept the secret for so long, but also proud of her success. They sent her to an advanced pilot school for two years, and she graduated before the war started and returned to the flying club to work as an instructor. When the war started, Nadia was desperate to join, just like all the other idealistic youth that wanted to defend their country. She lined up at the recruitment office with the teenage boys and girls, clutching their logbooks and their pilot's license, ready to prove their worth. The day the war broke, I joined everyone else trying to enlist. I was flatly refused. They weren't taking women pilots. I'm going to mess up this girl's name. Just going to put that out there. I'm so sorry to everybody that can actually speak Russian. (laughs) Evgenia Zulinko? We're going to go with that. Evgenia Evgenia Zigulenko. That sounded better. Yeah. Um, So this woman, Evie, we're going to call her that, another female veteran remembers, it was true that in the first months of the war, women were not allowed to enlist in the aviation units. Women could only serve as nurses, communication operators, or anti-aircraft gunners, even though many of them had been members of aviation clubs for years before the war. The recruitment officers scoured the civilian flying clubs and airstrips for suitable pilots, but most eligible male pilots had already volunteered for the Air Force. The recruiter called for all skilled pilots to line up If they were willing to join the war effort, every single pilot stepped into line. The recruiter placed a hand on Nadia's arm. Things may be bad, but we are not so desperate that we are going to put little girls like you up in the skies. As the war tore through the country, the recruiters got more and more desperate. Each week they would return to the airfield, searching for anyone they could send to the front lines. Each week, Nadia volunteered but they took the 18-year-old boys with 15 or so flight hours instead. Nadia protested because the women had far more experience in the air. The recruiter laughed in her face. The caravan drove away, leaving Nadia and her fellow female pilots behind, forced to train a new class of teen boys to fly rather than using their own impressive skills against the enemy. That must have been maddening. For someone with almost five years of flight experience... I cannot imagine that she was just, like, she didn't take it. She couldn't have taken it sitting down. Like, she had to be livid. Here she was, a talented pilot and a talented navigator, willing to fight, and no one would let her because she was a girl. Mm. And it was probably doubly frustrating, even more so than, like, for American girls, because they had, in communism, they had set up this thing where girls were equal to men. They were supposed to be equal. And here they weren't, and they wouldn't let them fight. She heard of Marina's September speech from a friend and like thousands of other women in the country realized immediately that if anyone could get permission for women to fly, it would be the iconic Marina. Nadia penned a letter immediately listing her flight hours, experience, and desire to join the war. She tried to sound grown up, not like a frustrated and sidelined teenager. Just like Nadia was desperate to convince the recruiters, 
Marina was also desperate to convince the government to allow female flyers. But yet again, they shut her down. Defeated, Marina retreated to her office, opened a bottle of vodka, as one does, (laughs) and smashed back two shots. She threw the shot glass on the floor in frustration and defeat. But it was then she noticed a pile of letters on her desk. She ripped into the first letter, from Nadia, pleading for Marina to find a way for the female pilots to join the war effort. Marina read letter after letter, each one from girls across the country pleading with her to champion their right as women to fight for their country. With renewed vigor, Marina carried a suitcase full of these letters all over Moscow, petitioning military high commanders and government leaders to allow these experienced pilots to fight for the Allies. One month later, Stalin finally said yes, and the first girl Marina summoned for an interview was Nadia. She was nervous. She had never even been on a subway before or traveled outside her hometown. Her mother was coming to terms with the fact that she might be saying goodbye to her baby, possibly forever. As she sat on her daughter's bed crying, she suddenly burst into hysterical laughter. Mama saw that I'd tucked one of my favorite dolls from childhood into a corner of the case. She turned to me and said, Darling, you can't take that with you to war. You're 18 years old now. Then tears rushed down her cheeks again. Her mother grabbed a little brooch in the shape of a beetle and put it in her hands. Wear it always. It will be your lucky charm. Nadia never flew a single mission without it. Chapter 3. Training. Nadia stood face to face with her idol as Marina told her to think twice about going to the front, that she would likely die or be blinded, burned, or lose a leg. We listened to what Marina Roskova had to say. Of course, we knew that what she was spelling out to us in such detail was possible, but we just could not believe it could ever happen to us, which was just as well. Marina leaned back and smiled for the first time. You are my first recruit. Report here tomorrow for further orders. There were so many female volunteers that by the time they had whittled it down to a thousand, there were still too many girls for just one regiment. So the one female regiment was split into three, the fighter regiment, the dive bomber regiment, and the night bomber regiment. When they arrived at Ingalls for training, there was a slew of cute young boys in uniforms stationed there as well. Ooh, baby. The girls, who remember, still teenagers, had just been dropped into a speed dating dream. But at that early stage of training, sadly, all they had time for was training and sleeping. So training sad. and sleeping. So sad. <laughs> I'm sure they were just heartbroken. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because they had to practice bombing from various heights and flying at night, first with an instructor, then solo. They had to navigate using rudimentary instruments and without any communication from the ground. They learned firing tactics, codes, navigations, firing machine guns, firing small arms. They were taught to fly day, night, rain, snow. There was a firing range where they ran drills and dropped bombs every single day. There was a lot to learn. One of the girls even said, looking back, it's hard to believe we had the nerve to tackle all of this. Because again, they had to do this in six months and it normally took people two years to get through this training. Can you imagine what you were like at 18, like doing this? I I wouldn't have. (laughs) I I did a lot. I was very smart, but no, this this would not have been me. 
Every morning at roll call, Marina would read the bulletins on the progress of the fighting in the war. The Germans had occupied Nadia's hometown. She had no idea what was happening to her parents. I didn't know if Mama and Papa were alive. We heard the most horrifying stories about what the Germans were doing to the civilians in that area. I refused to think of anything like that happening to my loved ones. I closed my eyes and imagined the little house the way it used to be. I imagined myself in bare feet, a little girl running through the cherry trees in the garden with Mama sitting in her chair outside. We couldn't get any letters with the occupied territories, and so many of the other girls were in the same position. The time for assignments had come. Marina posted Nadia as a navigator in the 588th Night Bombers. Her dream was to be a pilot with the fighter regiment. She was extremely disappointed at her posting, but also determined to do her best, whatever was asked of her. They needed navigators, and Nadia had extensive experience. So she swallowed her disappointment and climbed into the cockpit behind her pilot. One night, I was the commander of a flying formation on a training mission to our bombing range. I led four planes, two people in each plane. It began snowing heavily. They were inexperienced pilots, and I was supposed to teach them. They became disoriented in the darkness with falling snow. They could not tell what was sky and what was land. Two of the planes thought they were pulling up and crashed into the ground. I was in shock. We were training. Girls were not supposed to die in training. I was the flight commander. I felt it was my fault. The other two flight crews explained how the crashed planes had become disoriented in a sudden snowstorm. There was no horizon, no up or down. It was a tragic lesson for all of us. I still mourn them. I was 19 years old. Chapter 4. War. When the girls arrived at the front, the first night mission was flown by the commanders. The girls were all sitting cross-legged on the airfield for hours waiting for them to return. When the planes landed, they discovered that their own squadron commander had died that first night. The girls cried. She was their leader and friend. But the very next night, they were assigned to a combat mission, and all of them climbed into their planes and took off. It was an invaluable lesson about war. You can't let grief stop you from fighting. On nights when everyone came home safe, if no one had died or crashed, no one was lost or straggling behind, the girls would dance and twirl in the airfield. Those nights were victories. I just love that image. (laughs) They found something to celebrate, and Mm. I think that that's beautiful, even in the midst of a war. The PO2 planes had a lot of issues. A lot. They were old, loud. The sound of their engines could actually be heard from a long way off, like the front lines. They were slow. They were built of canvas and plywood. So if any part of them caught on fire, they would burn up instantly. The female pilots couldn't even reach the controls. They had to put blocks on the pedals and cushions on their seats to be able to touch. That sounds like my mom. I mean, she's like- It sounds like me learning to doll. drive yeah. at like a, but I was six, you know? Like, it's insane. And these are like bombers. Bombers. You know? They had no radios or radar. The girls had to navigate with a map and compass to find their bombing targets in the dark, which is why, you know, Nadia's job as a navigator was hugely important. But the girls found ways to use these obstacles to their advantage. 
They developed a sneak tactic using their plane's slow and low abilities. They would turn off their engines and glide low over the German target, dropping their bombs and then quickly restarting their engines to pull up before crashing to the ground. It's like... It's, it's like insane. they were it, they were too young to realize how stupid that was. <laughs> like we'll just but free fall in our worked. plane with a bomb. Well, a lot of them did have glider experience, so I think that yeah. they felt yeah. like it was a little closer to what they knew. But I mean, you're doing it with anti aircraft guns being shot at you right. while you're doing it, and if you get too close to the bombs, or you get too low, I yeah. mean, death. We would fly to the target at around four thousand feet then glide down to about 1,800 feet to drop the bomb so that the Nazis could not hear us coming. If we got any lower, the bomb shrapnel could reach the plane and kill us. Yeah, that. (laughs) Exactly that. The night bomber regiment underwent a grueling schedule every night. As the sun would go down, the pilot and navigator would receive their first mission coordinates. As darkness hit, they would take to the skies toward the enemy lines. The navigator would fly them to the target, and then the pilot would take over and drop the bombs. Then the pilot would fly them home while the navigator napped in the back. Napped. In a war. When they landed, the pilot would eat and sleep in the cockpit while the navigator ran to headquarters to receive their next mission orders. This would happen six to seven times a night. (laughs) It's... And they're, again, so they're dropping bombs, like, without their engine on, you know, going low, and they're, like, half asleep. Well, they're sleeping, and they're they're like, oh, this is a nice 20 minutes, and then pop back up, <sighs> let's go get a new mission, do it again. And my biggest question, which I have not been able to find the answer for in history, is when did they pee? One night, we were flying in formation toward the German camp. Our plane started to shake. I looked over to see my pilot, Olga. Something was wrong. Was it engine trouble? Had she hit something? She was a good pilot, but it looked like she was going to crash before we even made it to the target. Then she stuck her hand out of the cockpit and dropped the mouse into the air. Olga was terrified of mice. (laughs) Of course she would find one in her cockpit. We laughed all the way to the target. A dangerous pilot, almost downed by a mouse. That's amazing. That would so happen to me. Yeah. Soon the 588 started to gain a reputation. With their distinctive popping engine sound, the PO2s came to be dreaded by every German soldier who served on the southeastern front. The Nazi army was expected to cover 30 miles on foot a day, so they needed their rest at night. But the 588 did not give it to them. The Germans found the psychological impact of the harassment night after night almost too much to endure. Johann Steinhoff, a German ace pilot, was quoted saying, We simply couldn't grasp that the Soviet airmen that caused us the greatest trouble were in fact women. These women feared nothing. They came after us night after night in their very slow planes, and for some periods, they wouldn't give us any peace at all. Hitler put a call out to his army that anyone who could down a night witch would immediately be awarded an Iron Cross medal. The Germans soon learned the night witch's methods of flying low and in three-minute intervals, so the girls had to develop new tactics yet again. They flew the planes two at a time toward the target. The first plane attracted all of the searchlights and anti-aircraft guns, and the second would glide over the target with the engine idling silently and drop the bombs. This led to great success. Of course, it didn't work all the time. 
One night, the anti-aircraft guns did not fire at us. We were confused. Then, out of the darkness came a German fighter pilot. We had no idea what to do. We were bombers. We had never faced an enemy plane in the air. We did not have guns to fight back. Our tactics did not work. My flight experience allowed me and my pilot to escape. But the younger pilots with me, on the mission there were sitting targets. The German bullets set their planes on fire. Our planes were made of wood and canvas, and they burned like sheets of paper. We had no parachutes. There was nothing to do to save them. I watched eight girls burn in the air. It was a horrible scene. When the plane is burning, first it explodes, then it burns like a torch falling apart. Fuselage, wings, tail. Human bodies fall burning through the air. I can still smell their burning flesh in my nostrils. Nadia was reported missing on August 2nd, 1942. While acting as a decoy, her aircraft had taken severe hits. Shrapnel had also pierced the gas tank without exploding it. She was losing height and preparing to ditch the aircraft in the middle of the river, when the injured sputtered to life again and limped across the opposite bank before crashing. Nadia thought she landed near a Russian camp, but then she heard German accents. There was a burst of fire and then silence. Nadia and her pilot unfastened their harnesses, gathered their maps, and struggled to clear their cockpits. A flare went up from the German side, and heavy firing started immediately. The girls hobbled a few yards away and flung themselves into a hole. The German fire ripped through the remains of their plane. The women had gotten out just in time. Nadia watched as their plane burst into flame. The other pilots that had seen her PO2 spiral down resigned themselves that both Nadia and her pilot were dead. But instead, the girls walked until daylight and joined a main road packed with refugees, soldiers, civilians, families clutching suitcases, women holding screaming children, farm animals and litter possessions abandoned on the street. Nadia had flown over such scenes, but she'd never been part of one. It was shocking and hellish. I realized for the first time what it was really all about. At least I had a chance to hit back at the Germans. What could these women and children and old men do? All of a sudden, the German dive bombers came. The sound of the screamers was dreadful. Bombs fell from the bellies of the planes. Nadia flung herself into a field while explosions erupted. And then five minutes later, it was all over. Nadia stepped around dead bodies as she walked down the road. She found a wailing boy clutching the arm of a woman face down in the ditch. Nadia picked him up, turned him away from the body on the ground, and carried him down the road. She had lost contact with her pilot, and it would be two weeks before they'd see each other again. Farther down the road, a nurse was bandaging the wounded. Nadia gave her the child, and when the nurse discovered that Nadia was a pilot, she took her to a tree stump where another fighter pilot was sitting. He tried to stand to shake hands with her, saying his name was Simon. A cotton bandage obscured the middle portion of his face. Nadia could only see his forehead, dark hair, and blue eyes, but she decided he had a very attractive voice. Although I hadn't seen his face, I was attracted to him from that first moment. Nadia and Simon 
had each been given a blanket, and at night they would lie close in the darkness while Nadia sang to him. The bond between them grew closer. After two weeks, Nadia met up again with her pilot. It was time to return to her squadron. Neither her nor Simon knew if they would ever see each other again. Nadia squeezed Simon's hand and leaned over and carefully kissed his chin. We had promised to write. He told me how much he liked me, but letters could take such a long time. I didn't know what he looked like, and as the truck jolted along the road to our airfield, I realized that he had still not told me what his injury was. I felt quite weak in my stomach, as the thought occurred to me for the first time that perhaps he had been embarrassed to talk about his injury because he had lost his nose completely in the crash. If he were horribly disfigured like that, would it make any difference to the way I felt about him? I told myself it wouldn't matter, but how could I know until I was faced with it? A few days later, returning from a mission, a mechanic ran up to Nadia and told her a male pilot had arrived and wanted to have a word. Nadia was terrified. Was it Simon? Would he have a nose? She took off her helmet and ran her hands through her thick hair. Moistening her lips in anticipation of meeting this unknown man, she begged her friend, to go and check and see if his face was all there. The mechanic ran back into the barracks. There is a nose! Come and see! Simon smiled broadly as he stepped toward her. As he spoke, I knew it was Simon, but I had never seen his face before. I thought how handsome he looked. But more important, he had a nose. He was here to see me and he had a nose! I ran to him and threw my arms around his neck and kissed him gently right at the end of it. I was so happy. They would not meet again for several months. They made no pledges of marriage, but at one point, Nadia, knowing he would propose, took his hand and told him tenderly, Not until the war is over. We'll discuss it then, I promise. It was understood implicitly that if they both lived, they would be together. They followed each other's lives during the fighting through letters and newspaper stories, praying that the other would survive. Chapter 5. Victory Nadia was excited. The Germans had been pushed back beyond her hometown, and today she would be able to go back to her old home. Her brother had been killed, but now she knew her mother had been evacuated and her father had survived. She walked quickly through the town there had been considerable damage. She prayed her home had escaped and wondered if perhaps her bedroom still remained or the cherry orchard. When she turned the corner, it was one of the most distressing experiences of my life. I felt as if I myself had been somehow violated. The garden was bare. The earth churned up. Stumps where cherry trees stood the door partially on its hinges, reddish-brown smears of dried blood in the bedroom. Her boots crunched on pieces of glass. I learned later that the Germans had occupied my home and used it as some sort of interrogation center. Nadia wished she had not returned. She hurried out and did not look back. On May 1st, 1945, the Soviet flag was hoisted over the heart of Berlin, 
the Allies had taken the Nazi capital. When we were fighting to take Berlin, I made 18 combat missions in one long winter night. I stayed in the cockpit the whole time. I would have tea while the aircraft was being refueled and loaded with bombs. It was a very long night. I was so exhausted. When I made it back to the airfield, I could not get out of my plane. The day the war ended, Simon's fighter regiment was about 15 miles from Berlin. He arrived in a car at Nadia's airfield and walked in as she was lying on her bed reading. It was a complete surprise. We drove to Berlin as far as we could, then we had to leave the car with its driver and walk. Soldiers were everywhere, crawling around the city, riding on any surface of rubble, writing their names, the names of loved ones, poems, or simply the words, we won. Simon handed Nadia a pen and she wrote her name and the date on a piece of Nazi rubble. Then Simon added his name to hers. He lifted her in a bear hug. They had made it through so much. Nadia stood on her tiptoes, her arms around his neck, and kissed him. The war ended for us that day. I had just turned 22 years old. <laughs> 